you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Food Therapy, How Our Psychology Affects How We Eat by Pixie Turner. It was first broadcast on the 13th of April 2023. A video recording of this and many of the talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be doing this again, uh, once again. So yeah, very exciting. Okay, let's go for it. So uh, I'm going to be talking about food therapy, basically how our psychology affects how we eat. And obviously, I'm going to be coming at this from my particular uh, perspective. I'm going to be talking about research, but I'm also very much going to be filling in some of the gaps where there is research missing or where there is very limited research with my particular clinical uh, experience and expertise. Also, at some point, I'm probably going to have to switch the light on because it's going to get dark, isn't it? Let me just do that now. Otherwise, I'm going to be sitting in the dark later, and that is not good. Uh, So, yeah, as... As said, I am a registered nutritionist uh, because I have a master's degree in nutrition, and that is in fact a protected term. I always like to make a point of that because nutritionist by itself is not a protected term at all. Anyone can actually call themselves a nutritionist. So I make a point that I am a registered nutritionist um, because I have a master's degree and I am uh, registered with a regulatory body who monitors all of my work and makes sure that I don't do anything unethical. I am also an accredited psychotherapist. I'm accredited with the BACP, which again also means that I am held to a high standard by a regulatory body. And my work really aims to integrate these two things, to integrate nutrition and psychology or psychotherapy. And what that means is I spend a lot of my time in my clinical practice talking to people who have various food and body image related uh, concerns But they come to me because there are some deeper psychological roots uh, at play and they really want to kind of uncover those and figure out what is going on. So that is really the focus in my practice. And also I do a bit of teaching. I feel very lucky to uh, have guest lectured at like half of the nutrition programs in the country at this point, which is very exciting. I also do a bit of the, the old science communication on social media where I mainly just complain about things because there is so much to complain about. Uh, So quick content warning before I get into everything. I am going to be discussing trauma. I am a therapist after all. So I'm obviously going to be talking about uh, childhoods and early childhood experiences. Um, I will be mentioning specific types of trauma. That is purely to illustrate the points I want to make. I will be going into no detail whatsoever. And I will not be telling any patient or client stories in that regard. So there will be no details in this area. So I just want to make it clear. I'm only mentioning specific types of trauma where it is actually necessary for me to make my point. So to start with, let's make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to food. So if a group of people, say all of us, are looking at the exact same plate of food, none of us would see it in the exact same way. None of us would see the same thing. And also none of us would metabolize it in exactly the same way either, because there's huge variation between people in this. So for example, I've given two images here. You've got some bagels and some macarons. What do you see when you look at these pictures? And obviously, don't just say you see a bagel or you see a macaron. I mean, what is it that you are interpreting? What is it, what is it that you are seeing? Are you seeing something healthy, unhealthy, decadent? Are you assigning some kind of uh, moral or um, critical judgment value onto these foods? 
Are you seeing them as something that is everyday or special? What do you associate these foods with? Like, what are the kind of food, what are the kind of words that you think of? Because what you see is affected by your culture, your upbringing, your education, your current and your past financial status as well, geographical location. Whether you're hungry or full right now will change how you view these foods as you look at them, uh, your media consumption, uh, your beliefs about food and your beliefs about yourself and so much more as well. And this is because food is an incredibly complex thing. Uh, we like to think of it as being very straightforward. We eat food to survive, except we don't do that anymore. We are in a very privileged position where we are eating food for so much more than just survival. And that has made it food an incredibly complex thing for us as humans. Which brings me to what I call the presenting problem. So in therapy, the presenting problem is the reason why someone comes into therapy in the first place. It's not necessarily the absolute core of what's going on, but it is the significant thing that drives them there. And the way I see it, there are kind of two things that really drive people uh, to have particular issues with, with food. Now, obviously, this is massively oversimplified, but I do feel it is kind of a good uh, condensation of what's going on. And that is the two lies. The first lie is that there is good food and there is bad food. And that if you eat the good foods, you're a good person and you'll be healthy. If you eat the bad foods, you are a bad person and you'll be unhealthy. Now, I realize this might seem quite drastic to assign your moral value as a person based on the foods that you eat, but we use this language all the time when we say things like, oh, I've been so bad today because I've eaten chocolate. And when, when I hear these things, I like to say, you're not burning down a fucking orphanage. It's just a donut. Like, chill. Like, you are not a bad person because you ate a bar of chocolate or a donut. You're just not. It's so much more complicated than that. And the other lie is that there are good emotions and bad emotions. This idea of if I feel the good emotions, that's okay. That's all good. But if I feel the bad emotions, then maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something that's not quite right. Maybe I'm not allowed to express this. Maybe bad things will happen or I will be punished or there will be, uh, there'll be bad consequences if I express this emotion. So therefore, I either I'm not allowed to feel it or I'm not allowed to express it and I have to push it down. And my main problem with this is that it takes all of the context out of all of these things. And that is quite simply not fair. Because to say this is a good food without any context or nuance is just utterly ridiculous. Every food and every emotion requires context. I mean, a donut is a great example. You might see that as a bad food, but not necessarily. So there are plenty of uh, examples where a donut might actually be a really ideal food for someone. So for example, uh, when elderly people are in hospital, a lot of the time they have some difficulty in uh, not losing weight because it's actually quite, um, quite dangerous in a hospital setting to be losing weight a lot of the time. And so if someone is struggling with no appetite, uh, with no desire to eat, but they really need to actually make sure that they eat enough, Giving them a donut is going to be a hell of a lot more useful than giving them kale and is actually the better food for them in that scenario. Uh, similarly, you, people often see something like sadness as a bad emotion. But actually, you know, if someone died who you actually cared about and you didn't feel sad, something's not quite right. Like you are supposed to feel sad in that kind of situation. So similarly, anger is an emotion that I often... Um, 
hear people say is like a bad emotion. But anger is actually super, super useful because it tells you one of two things. It tells you either you've been hurt, which is useful to know, so you can rectify uh, what's going on, or it tells you that something is unfair. If there was no anger in the world, there would be no social change ever in any positive direction. Anger is super, super useful for telling us that we perceive something as not fair. Uh, another one, uh, another emotion that I often hear people say is a bad one is something like jealousy. Oh, I'm not allowed to feel jealous. If I feel jealous, that means I'm terrible. I can't, why can't I be happy for someone? Well, you can be happy for someone and jealous at the same time. Uh, in actual fact, that jealousy probably tells you well, that person has something you want and figuring out what you want. Really useful. So I really want to start from this place of there is no such thing as good and bad food. There is no such thing as a good emotion or a bad emotion. We need to allow these things to have context and nuance. And when we deprive these things of the context and the nuance that they deserve, that's when things start to go wrong. That's where we start to see problems emerging because either we associate that moral value with food and our moral value as a person, or because now we're pushing down emotions that are perfectly normal and human and things start to go wrong there. Obviously, as a therapist, I talk about people's childhoods all the time, and I'm definitely going to do uh, the same thing here. I want to talk a bit about how the early years of our life uh, really have a strong power to shape us psychologically, especially when it comes to the way that we relate to food and how we eat. Quick disclaimer, though, I'm not here to play a blame game. I am not interested in blaming your parents for your relationship with food. I am not interested in blaming the parents who are listening to this or watching this. I am so disinterested in that. This is not about assigning blame because what we can't do is look at a child and predict what they're going to be like moving forward. It's just not possible. Um, but what we can do is look at where an adult is now and figure out how the hell did they get here? It's about people understanding themselves. It's not about assigning blame. And uh, a great example of this is, I saw this fantastic quote once by a, uh, a dominatrix who said that uh, half of her clients who like to be spanked say it's because they weren't as a child, and the other half say it's because they were. You just can't predict how something that someone experiences in early life is going to shape them forward. So I'm not here to blame anyone. I'm simply presenting this information to allow people to understand themselves. That is the point. It is about understanding. So with that in mind, uh, I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to talk about trauma. I want to talk about food and love. And I want to talk about parenting, emotions and food, the intersection of these things. And then I also briefly want to talk about shame. So when it comes to trauma, we have two main types of trauma. We have what is called big T trauma, which is what I also call a kind of uh, objective trauma. These are the things that are, yes, obviously that is deeply traumatic for pretty much any anybody who experiences. Uh, we're talking things like uh, war, natural disasters, uh, um, medical uh, emergency where you have a near-death experience, for example, and also things like um, sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, especially when it is over, over a prolonged period of time. We also have little t trauma, which is... Uh, a bit more of a kind of subjective uh, trauma, if you will. They're the kind of things that might be really difficult and traumatic for someone, but also might be like, eh, it's fine. So this could be a bad breakup, uh, your parents going through a divorce or being bullied at school, for example. I tend to, in my practice, spend more time with the big T trauma. Uh, those are the clients who find me for, for whatever reason. 
And so there was a really great study of 57,000 women that found that those who experienced physical or sexual abuse as children were twice as likely to describe having a problem they described as overeating. So already we can see that there seems to be a connection between trauma and the way that someone engages with food. There's also uh, quite a few uh, different studies, but one in particular uh, that I want to highlight that shows that roughly 80% of individuals who engage in disordered eating reported having some kind of trauma exposure. And so disordered eating in this case means things like uh, fully clinical eating disorders, but also things that would be uh, subclinical, but still definitely uh, problems with food. Like we're not just talking somebody who skips a meal here and there because they're super busy at work and they just don't have the time. Like we're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, regularly skipping meals or uh, having very extremely rigid food behaviors, a lot of compensatory behaviors around food, huge anxieties around food, that kind of thing. And so there are two ways, two main ways in which trauma kind of really links to food and the way that people engage with food. Firstly, is that trauma, especially when it occurs early in life, leads to a sense of internalization of this belief of I am broken or I am not good enough. Uh, children especially hugely internalize anything bad that happens to them in that way and have a real tendency to blame themselves. But we also do live in quite a victim blamey culture. So uh, people do very much end up uh, having the sense of there's something wrong with me that this happened to me. And what that does is it really discourages people from anything that could be a kind of health promoting behavior because they have this belief of I'm not a good enough person. I don't deserve to pursue health healthy things, such as for, you know, eating more vegetables, um, not drinking too much, uh, not smoking or, you know, engaging in exercise, these kinds of things. The other part is this need for protection or self-soothing, these kinds of protective mechanisms that develop um, after someone has experienced um, significant traumatic events. And that can be either eating or avoiding eating as a kind of relief from the memories, the thoughts, the feelings that can arise. What happens if someone completely or very heavily restricts their food or you know, avoids eating a lot of the time? They stop feeling things as much. Their emotions are extremely dulled and that can feel like relief when they're experiencing a lot of difficult emotions or very intense emotions, for example. But also what I also hear a lot from people is that uh, when they eat, that feeling of quite intense fullness is a real distraction from any kind of feelings that are going on, especially because a lot of people find that certain emotions like sadness really live in their stomach or where their digestive system is. Therefore, there's a kind of displacement. The emotion is displaced and instead is replaced with a physical fullness that is much easier to focus on and much more pleasant to focus on than uh, any kind of you know, despair, pain, uh, sadness, for example. And the other thing these protective mechanisms do is they allow a person either consciously or subconsciously to change their body to protect themselves from past and future perpetrators. Uh, if you're interested in this topic, there is a fantastic memoir by Roxane Gay. It's a memoir called uh, Hunger, and she calls it a memoir about her body. And in it, she has the most fantastic quote that I will never forget, which is, so she she uh, she describes a really difficult, a really horrendous traumatic experience that she went through. And afterwards she says, I built my body into a fortress. That was her way of protecting herself. It wasn't necessarily on a conscious level, uh, but she used food as a way to protect herself from anything like what she experienced happening again. 
And so to use a kind of example, so let's say someone experiences a significant traumatic uh, event before the age of 18, there is the trauma. What then happens is there is a, a kind of a reshaping of the way that they perceive themselves and the way that they relate to themselves. And especially if there's a lack of support, they get that feeling of self-blame and a change in the way that they feel about themselves, these kind of core beliefs like, I'm broken, I'm not good enough, for example. Uh, the brain then begins to search for ways to prevent this from happening again, to protect that person. And so they go through a process of disconnection as a way of protecting themselves. And this is where the person kind of disconnects from their body as a protective mechanism and begins to use food to maybe push down the emotions and memories they can't cope with, or as I mentioned, avoid food as a way to avoid the, the emotions as well. And these behaviors become reinforced and entrenched over time, especially when the brain perceives these as helping, because they do help. That is the thing. They really are super effective in the short term. Long term end up causing um, a lot of unintended harm. But in the short term, these things really work. And when they do, there is a reinforcement and the behavior then occurs over and over again until it becomes the default for someone. And so someone can end up in a position whereby when they, as soon as they feel something like sadness, immediately they turn to food. So interestingly, there's a really strong connection also between food and love. And I end up having a lot of conversations with people about what they learned uh, about love uh, as, a, as a child. And often this is something that comes up around uh, breakups. So fantastic quote that, uh, that a client once told me was, food can ne never leave me like he did. And that is true. People can reject you. Food cannot. Not unless you have like food poisoning. But generally food can't reject you, but you can reject food. And so there is something quite, um, quite safe and comforting around that. And again, there's this real strong connection uh, between food and comfort for us because in an ideal environment, our very first experience of food is being held by somebody who loves us and who cares for us. And that very first experience of eating is associated with comfort and hopefully with love. And so this kind of connection develops and so comfort eating becomes a big thing for people, um, very understandably so. How can you disconnect these things when they are so integrated from the moment that you're born? And uh, research actually shows that people who describe themselves as emotional eaters are more likely to report uh, difficult, ch difficult childhood family relationships, uh, feeling lonely, perhaps uh, a lack of connection and a lack of self-care in adulthood as well. There's, there seems to be this real thing about how eating something warm in particular and feeling full does actually feel really comforting and cozy to us. So obviously that has a certain evolutionary advantage and that, you know, fullness is really good for survival. Uh, but also it, it does kind of feel like food can feel like this kind of hug from the inside as well uh, for people, which I think is a really wonderful thing. And so what can happen is that when there is an emotional emptiness or a connective emptiness, that can be replaced with a physical fullness rather than an emotional fullness or a connective fullness to another person. When it comes to parenting and emotions, uh, and I say parenting because it's anybody who engages as a significant adult in someone's life uh, to parent them in some kind of way or to engage with them over, uh, in quite a significant way. So children might receive quite an explicit message around emotional suppression. And this could be your very obvious uh, you know, don't get angry, don't cry, or I'll give you something to cry about. I'm sure a lot of people uh, may have heard that one. Uh, or you're too sensitive. 
And of course, some parents um, don't really tend to show emotion at all. Um, I've heard examples where people have said, you know, if their if their parent uh, or like their, their significant caregiver, for example, uh, started to to show some kind of emotion, they would leave the room instead of allowing that emotion to be expressed in front of their child. And so these significant adults in our lives are the ones who really teach us how to feel and express emotions. And if we aren't taught how to do that constructively, we may end up turning to food as a way of coping with those particular emotions. Again, because our very first experience of eating and food is associated with a sensation of comfort, with all the emotions. You cannot disconnect food from emotions in that way. And of course, we have kind of these explicit and implicit messages around food as well. Uh, good examples of a kind of very explicit message is, you can't be hungry already. How the fuck do you know if you if someone's hungry or not? Um, I care a lot about this. So, <laughs> um, And also uh, these kind of well-intentioned messages like, you know, insisting that someone finishes everything on their plate. Well-intentioned but actually can have some unfortunate side effects as well. And then we get the more implicit messages, the ones that aren't so obvious, but are very much under the surface. And that is if, for example, you have family members who are very obviously always on diets. Um, so you start to create this kind of connection between kind of food, body, desirability, self-worth. Um, these kind of things all start to become connected. Um if a child is readily exposed um, to kind of regular food and body criticism, like criticism of what they're eating and criticism of their body as a child, uh, that becomes really difficult. Uh, but also, um, it doesn't have to be directed towards the child. It can also be directed towards um, other people. So a parent, for example, who if, you know, you go out to a restaurant and uh, that adult uh, has a tendency to make judgments about what other people are eating or how they're eating or what their bodies look like, for example. Um, that can then also lead a child to make some connections between, okay, this is a good body, this is a bad body, this is okay, this isn't, for example. And although a lot of these messages are well-intentioned, especially, you know, things like you must finish everything on your plate, these things have good intentions. But unfortunately, what it can teach children is that their bodies can't be trusted. And if you teach children that their bodies can't be trusted, they are going to go to external um, forces and external messages to tell them what their body is saying. And that is really hard to rebuild. And when you think about how many fucking awful diet books there are all around, if I personally, I don't want people to be turning to those instead of their own bodies in that sense, especially children. Shame is probably the most difficult emotion for people to deal with. I think it's probably the hardest one because it's the probably the emotion that people find the hardest to even actually say out loud. There is shame around actually saying the word shame. That's how intense it is. But shame is a very much a learned experience because it is very much shaped by the social norms around us, around what people around us tell us is shameful. And so we can internalize this uh, ideas around uh, kind of shame around bodies and body size from quite a young age, which is why a question I often ask people who have uh, body image issues in adulthood, I ask them, what did you learn about your body as a child? The things people say, incredible, so much. And often actually links back to the previous, um, the previous bit I mentioned around kind of explicit and implicit messages around food, for example. When someone is, is taught to feel shame, that can really drive secret eating and it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where the shame drives secret eating and the secret eating reinforces the shame further and it goes round and round and round 
forever. Um, also, we have so, so much research showing that shaming does not make anyone healthier. It doesn't encourage people to engage in health-promoting behavior, behaviors. Shame does not do good things for people. It really is uh, really harmful in anything other than the tiniest of doses. And by the tiniest of doses, I mean that if you take your shoes and your socks off on a plane, you deserve to be shamed. But that's it. <laughs> I also want to quickly uh, point this out because this is a subject that is very close to my heart. Close to my heart. I work with a lot of LGBTQ plus people in my work, and I find this really just. This is one of the things that just blew my mind when I first um, first learned about it. But there is a very strong documented link between internalized homophobia, body image issues and binge eating. And that is related to shame. So any kind of internalized homophobia becomes this sense of there's something wrong with me and there's something I should feel ashamed of. And because the body is the thing that does the desiring of the thing that is shameful, the body becomes the problem and that can then lead to all kinds of uh, food related issues. So what actually outwardly presents as emotional eating is an, a learned inability to accept the self. Because it is so much more socially acceptable to say, I want to change my body, which is the external thing, rather than saying, I feel that I'm wrong as a person, which is very much about your kind of your internal uh, process. And actually, a lot of the time when I'm working with queer people, we actually have to do a lot of work around internalized homophobia, for example. And it's amazing what a difference that makes for the way that people feel about food and their bodies. It obviously is not the whole thing, but it really does make a difference. All of this, all of this is to say uh, that what we are all taught from society, from the adults around us, from all our kind of significant uh, people in our lives, and yes, definitely from society as a whole, is that our body is the stage upon which we enact the lessons we've learned about ourselves and our worth. We use our body as the thing that we can change based on how we feel about ourselves. And the most convenient way to do that is food. Hence why all of these things are super interlink interlinked and very, very complex. Come to adulthood, enough about people's childhoods. We also uh, need to talk a little bit about the kinds of psychological influences in adulthood that can absolutely shape the way that we approach food. And I wanna talk about a couple of things here. I wanna talk about thinking styles and self-talk. So our kind of internal psychological processes. Our collective human inability to sit with emotions uh, and deeply, deeply unhelpful media messaging, which is mainly uh, my excuse to go off on a rant about some things that piss me off. When it comes to our thinking styles, there are a couple of thinking styles that are really quite unhelpful uh, when it comes to just the way that we engage with ourselves, but also then in relation to how we engage with food. The first one is this kind of black and white, all or nothing thinking. Either something is perfect or it is shit. And this often when it comes to food really manifests itself in the sense of one thing's gone wrong today. Fuck it. The whole day's ruined. Might as well order a takeaway. Just, you know, not move, sit in front of the sofa, have a couple of glasses of wine. Just fuck it. One thing goes wrong. Therefore, the whole day is fucked. Might as well start again tomorrow. This very much like either everything has to go right, but if one thing goes wrong, then the whole day is ruined and I might as well start again tomorrow. So all it would take at that point is for one thing to not go quite right and then the whole day becomes ruined. That is not super conducive to uh, what I would describe as a healthy way to relate towards food and eating. 
Uh, we also have a heavy use of the word should and unrealistic expectations. The way I see it, should is just could with a hell of a lot of judgment attached. It's uh, it's that kind of nagging authoritative voice uh, that says, you should be doing this. Well, says who? You don't, you don't have to do any of these things, but it's worth interrogating where the kind of shoulds come from. It's always very interesting where people's shoulds uh, tend to come from. And when you start to reshape those into a could, uh, what you do is you turn it from a judgment to criticism into an opportunity and curiosity. It's great. It's one of my favorite things. But if someone has hugely high expectations of themselves and, for example, has a lot of shoulds around food and eating or around their body, for example, again, this can feed in beautifully into the all or nothing, the fuck it, as I call it. Uh, catastrophizing is, oh, people are so good at catastrophizing, immediately going to the very, very worst case scenario. That is catastrophizing. It's uh, what if the very worst thing possibly happens? And I always think, well, what if it doesn't? <laughs> Uh, we tend to focus on the the absolute most terrible thing when actually there's a whole lot of other scenarios that could happen as well. And when we spend a lot of time catastrophizing, what that can do is really uh, cause like anxiety, for example, or uh, kind of difficult emotional states that then we want to soothe and resolve with food in some kind of way. When people engage in super, super intense self-criticism, when the people are really harsh on themselves and talk to themselves in a way that they just wouldn't to anybody else. I'm always very curious about what that voice sounds like. Now, obviously some people don't necessarily have an internal monologue. I am one of them. When I realized that the internal monologue was not just a literary advice, my brain almost exploded. Um, but some people actually do have a literal voice in their head. And I'm always curious for those people, what does that self-critical voice actually sound like? Because for some people, it sounds like just themselves as an adult. Uh, for some people, it sounds like a parent or a significant adult, especially if they had a parent who criticized them a lot, for example. And for other people, it sounds like themselves as a child. Really interesting. Really fascinating. Uh, not sure exactly what those things necessarily always mean, uh, but really, really useful. Very interesting. So if someone engages in a huge amount of self-criticism, they're going to be putting themselves down. They're going to be addicted to themselves a lot of the time. And when you're addicted to yourself, again, it kind of feeds into what I said before with the shame. These things don't really inspire people to engage in health-promoting behaviors, to look after themselves, to take care of themselves, to treat themselves well. Because if you're talking to yourself like you're a piece of shit, you're probably going to treat yourself like a piece of shit. And that is not particularly healthy. And the other part of this is a kind of a rebellion, an internal process that is uh, rebellious. So I see this often when people, for example, have had a lifetime of dieting and they say enough already. And they try to engage in these kind of health promoting behaviors. They try to eat more vegetables, for example. But there's a part of them that just goes, no, you cannot tell me what to do. I refuse as an act of rebellion because uh that kind of inner part of themselves has not really had that opportunity to rebel in that way. And this is also something that comes up um, for pretty much everybody. Uh, for example, if you tell yourself, I can't eat chocolate. Well, now your brain hears the words eat chocolate. Now you're thinking about chocolate. I'm now thinking about chocolate. I was not thinking about chocolate 10 seconds ago, but now, now I'm thinking about the fact that I stocked up on mini eggs because my local supermarkets stop selling them after Easter, which I think is extremely rude. 
And now I want mini eggs. Now I really want to eat mini eggs. A couple of seconds ago, I hadn't, mini eggs weren't even on my mind. But now, because I said the words, I can't eat chocolate, I'm now thinking about chocolate. And I'm actually more likely to eat chocolate because of it. So I've really kind of shot myself in the foot in that sense by doing that. The more we tell ourselves we can't have something, the more we want the thing and the more we want to do the thing. So we kind of can get in our own way in that kind of sense as well. Moving on from thoughts to uh, feelings, humans I've noticed are very uh, are very bad at actually spending time with emotions. We tend to go, an emotion, ooh, get rid of it. Quickly, get rid of it. Do something with it. Uh, especially if it's a kind of difficult emotion. Not so much with uh, with happiness, although for some people it's, that's the case as well. But any kind of emotion that is seen as tricky or especially any emotion that's seen as bad, there is an immediate kind of, ugh, get rid of this, get this away from me. And so we end up going to methods of distraction or suppression, for example. And food is an incredibly effective short-term method of either distracting from or suppressing your emotions. Generally, the more you are able to spend time with your emotions, the less reactive you become to them and the more you can actually decide what to do with them. So especially when I work with people who are who describe themselves as emotional eaters, we want to figure out, okay, what is the emotion? What is the story behind that emotion? How can we work with that emotion so that you are able to spend time with it in a way that means you don't immediately feel the need to do something with it to get rid of it? Uh, so for example, a good example would be um, I worked with somebody who had a very difficult relationship with anger um, because they had a parent who uh, was prone to kind of outbursts of rage and then also had a sibling who was prone to outbursts of rage as well. And that taught this person that uh, anger is dangerous. And therefore, if I feel anger, I might display it like these, these important people in my life. So what they would do is they felt any anger, they would immediately go and eat something. And then they would just feel full. And now they can get annoyed about the fullness instead of actually doing anything with the anger. So when we return to kind of the story of how that difficulty with anger developed in the first place, we can now work together to find constructive ways of feeling and then also expressing that anger, for example. So generally, if you are able to just spend some time with the emotion, you can actually make a decision about what to do with it. And that is where people often end up seeing a reduction in what they perceive as emotional eating because they have they are able to decide what to do with that, for example. It's really difficult. To, um, if you're if you want to try this, it's really good fun. Uh, well, I say good fun. It's difficult, but it's very interesting to just sit and just do nothing and just to notice what kind of emotions come up and then just go, hi, have a seat, spend some time and not do anything with it. It's a skill. It's a real skill in so many areas of life, but especially uh, with food. Uh, I did mention emotional eating. So I do... Um, I do want to just say a little bit about that because it is uh, one of my favorite subjects. We have this idea that emotional eating is this terrible thing whereby we eat loads in, because we feel a bad emotion and we need to get rid of it. And sure, but actually there are lots of different types of emotional eating. And there are they, these kind of exist on a spectrum of more helpful on one end and more destructive on the other end. So eating for pleasure is arguably a form of emotional eating because it's not purely functional. There is some kind of emotion attached to it. I would argue that is super helpful and actually makes life uh, way more enjoyable to live, for example. Eating for comfort, again, I do think 
that is demonized too much. I think it is actually a really lovely thing, the way that food can be comforting. Uh, my favorite example of this is someone, one of my clients once told me that uh, when she misses her grandma who passed away, she eats canned potatoes because they remind her of her grandma. And I just think that is so lovely. And that is very clearly someone eating for comfort. But how can you tell me that that is a bad thing? That is such a lovely, wholesome, wonderful thing. I think that is incredible the way food can bring us closer to people who either aren't around anymore or who, or who are really far away, for example. That is a lovely comfort and support. And I think it's a really incredible thing that food can offer that to people. Kind of more towards the middle, we have an eating for distraction, um, where, you know, maybe, for example, uh, to distract from boredom or to distract from sadness, for example, just to kind of, ah, I don't want to feel this right now. I'm just going to distract myself by eating. Um, it's not super harmful. It's also not super helpful. It's mm, kind of in the middle. It very much depends on how someone engages with that. Heading more towards the kind of more destructive end, we have eating for sedation. That is to, rather than to distract, it's more to suppress emotions, to really push them down, to really avoid them, to avoid dealing with them, to avoid navigating them. And then on the super extreme end, we have eating for punishment. Uh, that is definitely uh, destructive because that is, at that point, we would call that a type of self-harm. And uh, that is really mean and really... Um, really sad when that happens, that people feel a need to punish themselves like that. So I wanted to present this to kind of give uh, emotional eating a bit more of a nuance as well, because I think it's not fair that it's seen as such a purely negative thing when it's not. There are lots of great things about emotional eating as well. Okay, there is a lot of unhelpful messaging around the kind of intersection of uh, psychology and food, especially mood and food. There are a shit ton of diet books that are a load of absolute garbage. I've presented some of my favorite ones here. I don't know if you've ever heard of the medical medium, but he is one of the people who piss me off the most in life. Just extremely. You know the celery juice thing? That was this bastard. Um, basically, if you haven't heard of him, he is a guy who lives in America, I think. He's not an actually a doctor. You might think so. Medical would be uh, kind of your indicator there, but no, no, he's not a doctor. He is a random guy who was given dietary advice by a ghost. He talks to spirits and they tell him, here's what doctors don't know yet. It is absolutely batshit insane. And for some reason, this guy has millions and millions of followers and every single book he writes is a bestseller. Sometimes I really do despair for humanity uh, around these things. But uh, yeah, the whole celery juice thing, that was him. You also get a lot of conflicting news articles, huge exaggeration of research, especially around things like um, depression, anxiety and food, for example. Um, and then, of course, every idiot has a podcast nowadays. Obviously, there are some wonderful podcasts out there, especially the skeptical ones. I am a big fan of those. But a lot of the podcasts that are focused uh, or have messaging around food, nutrition, um, mental well-being, they're just awful. They're just really bad um, because a lot of the times the people who are running the podcast are not experts. They do not have any qualifications in the area and they say a bunch of stupid stuff. Um, a lot of really like okay podcasts end up going down 
this really ridiculous route around food, diet, um, brain misinformation. Um, a couple of examples would be the the like the diary of a CEO, which started as a podcast about actual CEOs and now has a bunch of idiots who know nothing about food talking about food related things, which pisses me off. Um, the Huberman Lab, um, whatever this guy's area of expertise is, I think it's um, I can't remember exactly. But when he when this guy talks about his area of expertise, fine, great. When he talks about things like supplements, about nutrition, about biohacking, he does not know what the fuck he's talking about. Um, but very, very popular podcast. Um, I once talked about that briefly on social media and a lot of people got very upset. Um, that tends to happen quite a lot. Um, but these things are extremely unhelpful and people end up doing all kinds of weird things with food, end up with a lot of anxieties around food, for example, because they listen to the nonsense. So can food actually cure depression? Uh, this is a message that's often out there. I found this ridiculous infographic about natural antidepressants. There's no such thing as a depression diet. Uh, often when this research is done, there are associations between certain foods or certain food groups and uh, particular symptoms uh, of depression or uh, kind of when people are scored on their on depression, for example, by, you know, filling out those quizzes. There are a lot of conflicting variables in this kind of research. Uh, the biggest one being what we call healthy user bias. And what that means is that people who are wealthier, people who are just generally healthier, have better outcomes in every possible regard. And therefore, because they're eating more kind of health foods and because they are they also sleep well and they also don't smoke and they also don't drink too much and they also exercise and they also live in parts of the country that have green spaces and they also have disposable income and they have education and uh, you know they have access to fresh fruits and vegetables all the time well yeah duh those people are probably going to have lower scores of depression because everything is better for them in life uh, but also i think it's really dangerous when these messages say that you can actually use food to cure depression that is not the case and uh, unfortunately, what I'm really concerned about is when people end up not going to therapy or not taking medication because they decide to eat a certain way instead. And that is absolutely not an OK message for people to be putting out. If someone wants to change the way they eat to kind of support what they're doing in therapy with medication, that's great. That's fine. But it is not as simple as if you eat this way, if you eat these foods, you will be less depressed. It's not that simple one is can cutting out sugar cure anxiety and the answer is absolutely fucking not uh the idea that anxiety is is purely related to sugar consumption is extremely ridiculous a massive oversimplification and just completely erases all the complexity that goes into why somebody might be experiencing anxiety um Again, found this ridiculous. I did not have to Google very hard to find uh, these ridiculous infographics on the internet. Eight foods that can cause anxiety. None of these things cause anxiety. This is completely ridiculous. Even just the notion that sugar causes hyperactivity is complete and utter nonsense. Like there is no link between these things. It is largely a placebo effect. Um, the idea that, you know, we have these huge sugar crashes that then lead to, and you know, sugar highs and sugar crashes that then uh, drive anxiety. Um, no, you'd have to eat a huge amount of sugar for that to be the case. Uh, for a lot of us, our bodies are absolutely equipped to handle these things. And it does not also take into the account the nuance of how your blood sugar reacts to you eating a variety of foods put together. 
for example, or foods in relation to one another. These foods do not cause anxiety. Cutting these out will not cure anxiety. These things are so much more complex than that. And it pisses me off that we oversimplify these things or that a lot of media messages and social media messages really oversimplify these things. The amount of therapists that I have wanted to yell at because they have told people, if you cut out sugar, your anxiety will go away. So obviously there is a lot more to the kind of intersection of uh, food and psychology than just what I've mentioned, but I've decided to focus on a couple of things that hopefully have been interesting, uh, that also are very much within the kind of areas that I talk about with, with my clients, with my patients. So to sum up, the intersection between food and psychology is incredibly complex. Our early life experiences, and especially in adulthood, the kind of media that we consume, these have huge power to shape us psychologically, both positively and negatively. Uh, food is often a very powerful and successful uh, short-term solution to uh, kind of psychological distress or emotions that we find particularly difficult. And if you're a parent sitting there going, what do I do? If in doubt, start a therapy fund for your child, future or existing children. I know in America, a lot of people in the States have college funds for their kids. I think parents should, uh, if they can, start a therapy fund for your children because it's kind of inevitable that you'll fuck up your kids a little bit. So you might as well give them some therapy to help them sort it out. And obviously being a therapist, I'm a big fan of therapy in general. Thanks. Oof. Almost pulled up my headphones there. Um, yeah. Thank you. I really hope this has been interesting. And uh, yeah, I will hand back over. Okay, and we're back, everybody. Hopefully you're fed and watered. And what a joy, because not only are we rejoined by Pixie, but there's a cute cat on screen as well, and you will not believe the wrangling that went on to get that uh, to get that done. Okay, very impressive. Got to make sure that everyone shows her some love. Can Can you introduce us, please? This is Mimi. She's my baby, and she's very upset that she has to be here with me when she wants to be sleeping. Yeah, she was very much present before the start of the talk, so I'm glad I'm glad she hung around for a little bit. Mimi, thank you so much for making the audience happy. Okay, I'm sure everybody's going crazy in text chat now, but hey, let, let's get back to the serious stuff. On to the questions, and just just a preface here: um, Pixie's not here to to give advice, and I know that some of the questions are along the lines of hey, what would you advise or how do you think, right? And there may be some comment, but, you know, please maintain uh, a detached sense of realism with what what you can expect here. Now, with Yeah, that basically, time, sorry, just quickly, in a nutshell, I am not your therapist. I cannot be your therapist right now. Yeah, ex exactly. But with that in mind, Pixie, um, you know, let's start off by solving um, every single parent's problem in the world, okay? You could just give us a magic bullet, please, just once, that'd be fine. Um, question from anonymous, presumably anonymous parent. Uh, what are some positive ways to encourage a child to try new foods? Okay, so I want to preface this by saying I'm not a child psychologist. I'm also not a child specialist nutritionist. Um, so, But with that in mind... Uh, generally, what the research shows is that you have to expose a child to a new food a bunch of times and you have to just be persistent and present it alongside other foods. You, it's not going to be enough to just give that 
food to that child once or twice. It has to be up to 20 times in some cases. So you need uh, persistence and you need to ideally kind of frame that food as not uh, not a reward, uh, not nothing special, just another food, kind of make no big deal out of it um, in some way. And that kind of neutrality around it will help as well. So, you know, children will be skeptical if you make too big a deal of it. Also, if you frame it as like, you just have to do this, get through it, it becomes the punishing food uh, where another food becomes the reward. And that's a bit tricky. Mm. It, it is. I mean, as a three-time parent myself, I can confirm it as a constant sense of anxiety about trying to get your kids to eat. Not even new stuff, just stuff they eat all the time and just have decided, oh, it's Tuesday, I don't want that thing that I normally like. So um, thanks anyway, Pixie, and, and I think that's hopefully going to help along the way. Um, let's move on. Uh, our next one is from Bryce. Now, Bryce is a regular Edinburgh Skeptics who have a talk tonight. So he's cheating on Edinburgh Skeptics just to be with us tonight. Thank you, Bryce. Um, question is, what practical psychological steps would you recommend a friend uh, to support a friend who has ED or recovering from ED? So there's a couple of things that come to mind is firstly, if you have a friend who's struggling with an eating disorder, the way that you talk about your own food, just make sure you can still see me despite the cat, the way you talk about your own food, your own body, your own kind of eating is going to make a difference. Um, so being kind of neutral or ideally not making comments about your own body, anybody else's body, uh, making really kind of comments about your food, their food, anybody else's food, other than, you know, a very kind of neutral sense of this food is delicious, for example, but being very mindful of not adding any kind of, um, value or moral kind of judgments to any kind of food in that way. And also not making comments about other people's bodies, um, even super well-meaning things like, you know, you look really well. It seems like you're doing really well. Like, oh, you ate loads. That's so good. These kinds of things can actually make someone go, oh, shit, it is too much and can actually end up backfiring. So it's worth being mindful that just because your intentions are good does not mean that that is going to come across well to somebody who's struggling uh, with an eating disorder. Generally, if you're not sure, avoid body conversations, food conversations. That usually works quite well. And just support them, listen to them. Don't minimize any kind of, of their experiences as well and be like, oh, but it's no big deal. Oh, but you look great. These kind of things, just generally not helpful. Um, yeah, that's kind of the, the big stuff that people with good intentions often get wrong. Isn't there a fair amount of that that's sort of falls into the territory of just good decorum anyway right because i'd like because i'm a little bit older a lot older than many the generation i grew up in it was constant you know what's that you're having oh you've had a lot oh you've not had much oh you look this way oh you look that way right and you know obviously we're in thankfully more enlightened times now so and maybe there's some bad habits for particularly older generation like me to get out of in that respect right yeah, I think so. I think so. Also, there's this other weird phenomenon whereby, especially you see this, especially in groups of women, whereby bashing your own body becomes like a social pastime uh, where it's like, this is the socially acceptable thing we do. This is how we communicate. This is how we bond by being dicks about our own bodies and our own food and talking about all the ways in which we hate ourselves. And 
that just seems to be accepted as normal uh, a lot of the time. And I think it really shouldn't be. Mm. Not really. That, there are so many more interesting things to talk about yeah. than how your body looks or like how much you've eaten that day. I mean, those conversations are so dull in comparison to much better conversations you could be having with people. Is that kind of born out of insecurity and like, okay, I'm going to self-deprecate and deflate the situation just to to get it out of the way and move on almost at times? Oh, 100%. Yeah. We, we put ourselves down first so that we can get in there before somebody else does in the hope that it will hurt less. And usually it doesn't hurt any less. For sure. Um, okay, let's move on. The next question is from our very own Igor. Um, should the hypothetical person with some connections between food and happiness and or self-worth think about decoupling those or just embrace the situation? So when it comes to food and happiness, I think for those things to be connected is a truly wonderful part of being human and is lovely. And I don't think that is something I would want to discourage in people. Food should make you happy. That's kind of the point. Also, really, from an evolutionary perspective, food is supposed to make you happy. It's supposed to taste good because we've actually evolved to enjoy the taste of food. Otherwise, we would have died a very long time ago as a species. So there is that part. Off she goes. When it comes to food and self-worth, that I do think is worth decoupling because the food you eat has no bearing on your worth as a human being because your your worth as a human is, is inherent. It is not dependent upon you eating a certain way or eating certain foods, for example. And that then becomes quite a, uh, a very shaky foundation on which to build your self-worth, I think. And your self-worth ideally needs to be on a much more solid foundation than because otherwise it can be shaken by you eating something. And that that doesn't sound super healthy to me. For sure. For sure not. Um, okay, ne- next question from Nadia. Uh, is it okay to feel annoyed or disappointed for a long time, hours, uh, after eating something not tasty? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I've definitely, you know, felt this. I, you know, I've tried something new at a takeaway instead of my usual. It's not as good. And I get annoyed because it's, uh, you know, feels like a bit of a waste of money, and I should not have tried something new. I should have stuck with what I know. I think that's that's normal, especially when you have high hopes or expectations of a food, or you've spent a lot of money for it, for example, or it uh, is a special occasion. Where it kind of tips into mm, probably need to keep an eye on it is when it's because you end up putting foods on a super high pedestal that they actually don't really necessarily deserve to be on. And that then eating experience then ends up shaping your day quite a significant way, especially over the course of many days. So if it's like a frequent occurrence, but if it's like, you know, you've gone to a fancy restaurant, you're spending some money and the food isn't as good. Well, yeah, I think it's perfectly normal and human to feel some annoyance at that for a period of time. Yeah, I think so. Um, See me in the lock-ins razor afterwards, folks, if you want my long rant um, about the very, very poor takeaway pizza me and the missus had recently. It still hurts, folks. It still hurts. Um, Okay, let's move on. Uh, Next question is from Crafty. Mm, By name, hopefully not by nature. Um, What are your top three red flags for food behaviours one should consider as a good impetus for seeking therapy. Maybe you don't need to give us your top three, Pixie, but, you know, any, any particular warning signs that you want to kind of point out to us? Mm, okay. First one would be significant anxiety around either foods or 
spontaneous eating decisions. Obviously, the exception to that is if you're allergic to something, um, that's different. But if there is significant anxiety around either specific foods or especially spontaneous eating decisions, if you cannot make spontaneous decisions around food or especially like going out to eat, for example, um, compensatory behaviors by which I mean, I can't eat this unless I have exercised. I can't go out to eat unless I have done this. Um, I have eaten this much, therefore I have to punish myself tomorrow. Mm. That's that's a bit of a red flag um, for me as well. Um, and I suppose the, the big one would be um, using food as punishment. That's, that's the big one. Uh, but also just generally, if you feel like you're using food to cope with emotions in a way you're not happy with, Therapy can be a good way of uh, figuring out what's going on with those emotions. For sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not quite grasping. Can you just go into a bit more detail about that spontaneous decisions problem there, Pixie? Yeah. So um, often I see that people are able to, for example, they feel fine about like going out to have a pizza when it is arranged in the diary two weeks in advance. They mm -hmm. know they're going to have that pizza. They can mentally prepare themselves for it. Like, it's fine because I can prepare for it. But if it's a spontaneous, oh, do you want to go get, go and get pizza rather than, you know, cook at home today? And that causes anxiety. Okay. That's then where there's a bit of a problem because that shouldn't be a problem, ideally. Yeah. So in all in all normal situations, it should be quite an easy choice to make. It's a yes or no or why not, right? Okay. Yeah, because also, I mean, if you can't do that, then there is a an element of quality of life that you're missing out on. Because you're going to be saying a no to a lot of fun things that you might actually want to say yes to. You're missing missing out on social stuff. Um, it's just going to make your life a bit more limited. For sure. And potentially, that I mean, that's the type of thing that can cause friction in relationships as well. You know, if you're trying to, let's say you're trying to suggest something spontaneous to your significant other, and then it becomes a, it becomes a whole thing, right? Um, okay, th thank you for clarifying. Um Okay, back to Nadia. Um, do you meet patients persuaded by other therapists that they have a trauma, like suppressed memories and stuff, while they don't? And how do you approach this? This kind of ties back to, to I guess, one or two talks back. We had Carrie Poppy talking about some, um, uh, should we say, bad practice in therapy and, and, and you know... <laughs> trying to bring out uh, so-called suppressed trauma from their patients? Is it something that you've kind of come across, Pixie? And not super explicitly like that, but I can think of one or two examples where um, where someone has said to me, are you sure that something bad didn't happen to me in this sense? Because a previous therapist said that it, I, that they were, because the, a previous therapist was like, are you sure that you weren't sexually abused as a child? Because mm, I think you might like, maybe, are you sure? Like a therapist, a previous therapist was quite pushy about it. Mm. And so then that person's gone to me like, is it possible? And I go, well, if it didn't happen, then it didn't happen. Like, if you don't remember, we're not going to go there. I'm not going to try and reveal things that you don't remember um, in that sense. So not like super explicitly, but people have sometimes been unsure because a previous therapist has been pushy about Oh, are you sure you didn't experience this? Which a therapist shouldn't do <laughs> because it's up to the person to decide what they bring to therapy. But anyway, that's a whole okay. other rant. All right. So let, let, take us behind the curtain a little bit, Pixie, right? Because uh, you'll be unsurprised to hear I'm not a therapist, right? So my knowledge of therapy is probably based on stuff I've seen on the telly and the like, right? But like, I, I'm imagining like, as a therapist, you have a client that comes to you and 
you know, clearly they have an issue and, and you know, it's your job as a therapist to try and delve into the past and join those dots and make those connections, right? But do you ever get occasions where that's, it's hard to pin, like try and pin something down? Uh, and maybe, maybe as there are, uh, not not in your case, obviously, but maybe in other therapists, is there a sort of an idea where they're going to think, well, something bad must have happened because look at you type thing. And maybe is that where they're going with it? You know, help me out here. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's this idea, well, something terrible must have happened because that's a nice, simple narrative, right? One bad thing happened, therefore you are like this as a person. And for some people, that is the case. For others, not so much. I mean, I probably should point out, I don't delve into people's pasts unless they want to. So there will be times potentially where therapists are like, but why can't we talk about your childhood? Um, but if someone doesn't want to, then you're not going to and they shouldn't be forced to because that's not the basis of a trusting kind of relationship. Uh, but I mean, for me, there have been times when I sat there going, mm, I can tell that you're avoiding telling me about something. I can just tell a lot of the time when someone is dancing around something when someone is avoiding something, when someone is really just, you know, hiding something away, I don't necessarily know what it is, but I can usually tell if someone's avoiding or dancing around. And if I know them well enough, I will be like, I see what you're doing here. And if I don't, then I just put that to one side because if they're not ready yet, it's not my place to force them. Because okay. yeah, as I said, that's not the foundation of a trusting relationship. Yeah. Uh, understandably. And, and you know, for, for folks watching, you know, the the book does contain a lot of examples, Pixie, right, where you've sort of delved into the past. And, and the, I, I, um, I did the audio book thing. So usually I'm out jogging or out walking and, you know, uh, and, and then suddenly it hits some mm. oh, really dark stuff. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, uh, uh, kudos to you for giving me the feels when I'm jogging. It takes my mind off that, you know, so. Uh, You're welcome. Okay. Um, all right. Next question, back from, oh, Igor again. Okay, <laughs> how do we phrase this? So, is it all bollocks that all the stupid diets, all the food shaming we endure since forever, every unpleasant food we had to suffer through because it's healthy, is it all bollocks? I mean, mostly, yeah. Most diets are a load of bollocks um, and unnecessary, overly restrictive, stupid rules that don't make any fucking sense. Um, yeah. Food shaming as a practice is just incredibly unhelpful and is quite damaging to people. And I, you know, I think when it comes to like foods to suffer through, sometimes it's good to suffer through a couple of foods here and there to because um, to, your taste buds change over time. So in that sense, like if you didn't like something a couple of years ago, it might be worth suffering through the experience now to see if you like it. But I mean, like, for example, if someone really I've had people tell me, for example, like, I hate vegetables. And I'm like, you probably don't. Sometimes, yes. So, for example, um, with certain neurodivergence and food sensitivities, for example, or sensory issues around food, yeah, 100%. Um, but a lot of the time, people haven't been taught how to cook vegetables properly. And if you're eating just like, in my opinion, boring boiled vegetables, well, yeah, it's fucking dull. It's not going to taste of anything. Like, it's just mush at that point. But you roast some vegetables properly with the right seasoning and a bit of olive oil. Mwah! All of a sudden, those vegetables that seemed dull are now the most glorious bombs of flavor that taste absolutely delicious. So sometimes it's just about cooking things properly or just putting a fuck ton of cheese on it and then it will taste better. Oh, for sure. Hey, and side note, spotted out the window here. 
um, takeaway delivery ordered by my older daughter. Probably not the crappy pizza that me and the wife had a few weeks ago, but I'm going to be stealing some of that food later on. Nice one. Okay, um, next question from Chromium52. Um, numerically superior to Chromium51. Um, if anger can be a powerful motivator, can't shame also be one? Or is shame an actually solely bad feeling the exception to the rule? A lot of the time, shame is the exception to the rule. Um, so there's actually been quite a bit of research on um, shame and its relationship to uh, kind of health-promoting behaviours. And there is a real misconception, um, especially on like panel shows, uh, you know, your Good Morning Britain, these kinds of places that, you know, we must just shame people into eating properly. If we shame them, then they'll do things right. And time and time again, the research shows that it is just not the case. There might be, as always, a small subset of the population for whom shame has been a motivator. But generally, it just isn't. It is the most demotivating thing for people. And just the odds are so stacked against it that I'm just like, it's just, just don't. Also, it's a dick move to shame someone for something like eating food. I just think that's just rude. So it's, I don't think I don't think it's worth trying for somebody just in case they're in like the one percent of the population for whom it works. When actually, it's just a bit of a dick move. Yeah, there's there's a bit of a I guess a bit of bias going on there as well because the, the, I guess sometimes you see these you know potentially well-meaning stories of this person who turned their life around and they are on camera telling tearfully about the terrible moment when something really embarrassing happened and it you know it helped them turn their life around etc but that's you know that's presumably the exception to the rule right yeah we call that you know survivor bias sure because the people who were shamed and then got worse they're not going to talk about it to anyone because it just reinforces the shame further so the only people who actually share these stories are the survivors of shame so to speak yeah for sure um okay um next question is from an anonymous person the comments on suppressing emotions sound very like a friend's behavior except their chosen food is alcohol do you see this overlap in your practice Yes, 100%. So while food is a very common way for people to suppress their emotions, alcohol, uh, drugs, work, uh, even cleaning, uh, exercise, these are all uh, methods by which people can suppress their emotions. Food just happens to be a super popular one um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because we eat every day. Uh, secondly, because of our longstanding um, relationship between food and comfort and all of that stuff mm -hmm. and uh, also because uh, when you are a baby you only have two main ways to exert control what comes in and what goes out mm -hmm. so there's this kind of connection between food control a sense of power and all of these kinds of things so yeah it's all super connected yeah i mean again it's something that that struck me as i was listening to the audio book was yeah you could you could swap out food with alcohol drugs whatever i guess the 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 difference is i mean you know if you have a drug problem in theory you can get on just fine without having any drugs right but food's always going to be around it needs to be around you know so there's that the necessity of the food being around you um means that you have to not just deal with your problem and uh, but but have have everything around you in a way that's that's 
still allows you to maintain a healthy environment. It must be incredibly difficult when food is the problem, right? Well, yeah, well, that's the thing. Food isn't the problem. Food is the solution. So we've got to figure out what the what the problem is. But yeah, so I mean, we can make these parallels to um, alcohol, drugs, these kind of things when it comes to a uh, suppression of emotions. Um, but the big difference, of course, is that food is not addictive and can't be. We, I don't think we can see food as addictive because you can't, in my view, be addicted to something you need to live. Um, and so, again, yeah, and it, that's where the similarities really just um, end and where it completely di- diverges, because as you rightly pointed out, you can't live without food, not for a long time anyway, but you can live without things like alcohol, drugs, you could theoretically live without exercise, I guess. But yeah, but that's where the similarities hugely, hugely end. But yeah, but also, yeah, food is the solution just like alcohol is the solution for people and it's only once you stop doing that that you often figure out what the problem is that you need to actually solve in a constructive healthy way okay that's that's interesting like you know saying food food is not addictive i mean that's not the narrative we hear right like you know i'm I'm addicted to chocolate right and you know as a chocolate lover myself i mean i do i do get quite the elation when i'm you know inhaling um easter eggs as i've been doing over the past few days right it is it's you know you feel a rush and stuff but presumably that's just okay it's nice you know but you don't you don't equate that with other things that you can potentially become addicted to then well no the um the mechanism has some similarities in that it um it stimulates the dopamine pathways but it does that in the same way that like hugging a cat Cuddling a cat will like stimulate those dopamine pathways. Um, you know, having having a really lovely time with someone, giving someone a hug. Um, these things all have that same kind of um, effect on kind of the dopamine systems in the brain. But the substance itself is not addictive. It doesn't alter chemically those pathways. You don't have a dependency. You don't get the withdrawal symptoms in that sense. Uh, biochemically, it does operate very, very differently. Um, but yeah, but also... Food is supposed, like I said, food is supposed to taste good because um, otherwise we would have died out as a species. So we are actually supposed to find it enjoyable. It is supposed to kind of trigger those dopamine pathways because that encourages us to eat more. They're actually, people do exist who hate food and generally they are people who have something called ARFID, which is um, avoidant restrictant food intake disorder. I think that's it. Um mm-hmm. And I've met some people who have offered and they just don't enjoy food at all. They don't enjoy the taste of food. And anyone actually who's had COVID, who's lost their sense of taste and smell, it's really hard to actually eat enough food to just kind of continue to get on with your life. And it's not enjoyable. And there's no real drive or motivation to eat at that point. So imagine if that was taken away permanently, it would really be hard to eat enough food and to maintain our survival as a species. For sure, for sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, all right, next question is, oh, we're back to Igor again. Can or should food be employed as some sort of therapy? Like using food and pleasure, it gives us a way to deal with emotions. Feel bad, eat a mini egg, you know? Um, what do you reckon? Yeah, kind of, up to a, up to a point. Sure. I mean, the fact that food can give us um, comfort, pleasure, all of these things is, I think, a really lovely thing and can be used for good, um, especially, you know, if you're if you're a bit miserable, have a mini egg. Sure. Like as long as you don't um, 
experience what you perceive to be unintended consequences from it, or um, you don't end up destroying yourself with guilt afterwards, then mm -hmm. it's not inherently a problem unless you decide it is a problem for you. Um, food can be therapeutic um, in some senses in that it can, uh, like I said, bring people closer together. Um, if you're recovering from an eating disorder, food is part of your therapy hugely. And um, when I when I work with people who are recovering, especially from uh, restrictive eating disorders, I often ask them about happy food memories and happy um, kind of foods that they used to love and encourage them to eat those foods while thinking about those memories to try and bring kind of that enjoyment back into eating, for example. So, yeah, ki uh, kind of. Um, of course, food is not medicine. That's the other thing. Food is not medicine. Food is food. Medicine is medicine. Different biological, biochemical parameters. Yeah, I'd, I'd love the tin potato story, by the way, really nice. And there was some interesting chat about that in the text chat. You know, for, if you've not had a tin potato, go go ahead and do it. You should have. Everyone's, everyone needs to try it at some point. They're not nearly as awful as you might think, right? And I love the fact that food can trigger a memory like that. It's such a sweet story. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, look, I've got one as well for me. So um, so my, my father died a couple of years ago, and his favourite dessert was a sticky toffee pudding. And so on his birthday, I eat a sticky toffee pudding, and it is a just a wonderful thing. It's very sweet. It's not my, like, all-time favourite dessert, but I will have it on that day because it's just – a wonderful memory and it always makes me think of him and sure you could argue that is an unhealthy food but i don't give a flying fuck i it is a wonderful thing and that's so great how food can do that yeah for sure sticky toffee pudding is the best as well mm. love it right oh, okay um moving on anonymous question what is the risk of relapse uh, in eating disorders what signs should we look out for that may be indicative of a relapse uh, unfortunately, risk of relapse is usually quite high for people. Um, it very much depends. So unfortunately, uh, as much as the NHS is wonderful and um, is an incredible thing, resources and services are very stretched. And often what that can mean is that someone who goes into a, a kind of inpatient or intensive outpatient services, once they are weight restored, everything just disappears. And a weight restoration is not the only indicator of recovery. And often it's only once someone is weight restored that stage two of the recovery can actually happen as they acclimatize to everyday life and also just to their new body, uh, often in a sense as well. And psychologically, there's often a huge amount of work that still needs doing. So at that point, Unfortunately, the risk of relapse is quite high because people just aren't given the support they need to actually go into the world and live everyday lives around food all the time, just kind of, you know, maintaining what they are doing. So every individual needs to know what their own red flags are that they need to watch out for. And if, you know, for example, if you're a parent whose who's child is going through this process, figuring out for that person, what are the red flags? What are the signs that there is a risk of relapse, which could be related to why someone developed an eating disorder in the first place. Um, so it could be around, you know, a change in situation. It could be, a, you know, a stressful out of control um, circumstance in life. It could be uh, related to puberty in some way. It could be related to um, difficult emotions like a breakup, for example, that those things are likely to be red flags. Therefore, at that point, you need to be super, super vigilant. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen that before in my personal life where someone is deemed, okay, you're all right now, you know, but if you're close enough to them, you know they're not really all right, you know, they might appear so in, in any kind of, should we say, inciting incident can, can bring it back again. And I suppose there's various different types of eating disorders and various types of red flags associated with that. But I guess vigilance is the key, right? Yeah, and and really figure out what are that person's individual personal red flags to watch out for. And maybe the people around them need to be aware of that as well. Yeah. Um, Okay, a couple more questions to go. Um, This one, again, we're back to Bryce. Big up, Bryce. Um, What's your experience working with neurodivergent patients compared to neurotypicals? Oh, I love this question. Okay, so there is a... um, a lot of emerging research in this uh, area because there is actually a quite a significant overlap between autism and eating disorders. Um, Autistic people are much more likely to develop eating disorders um, because of things like uh, sensory issues with food, uh, people around them just really not understanding how they relate to food, for example, and again, difficulty with either kind of emotions or social situations, for example, all of that can um, drive someone more towards um, either an eating disorder or a more difficult relationship with food, for example, especially if they don't have the understanding uh, of people around them. Uh, so I work with quite a lot of autistic people um, uh, who have food-related issues. And often uh, we have to kind of just uh, kind of just tweak things a little bit in the way we approach things. So for example, it might be that a certain rigidity around food just is the norm because that is the way that that person Uh, just lives their life with a very rigid kind of structure and routine and that is what feels good for them they can't be the kind of person who is like super flexible um, around food for example or with like like with their routine for example Um, so that would be a good example of where things are a bit different in the way that we approach it and forgive me for asking but uh, is this something that you you ask specifically of your clients like is like do you have any kind of condition that that i should know about or is it just something you co- you sort of work towards throughout your conversations please tell me what you're allowed to tell me yes in my in the intake forms there's there's a section where people where i ask people to tell me about medical conditions or anything that they want me to to know about and um all the autistic people i've worked with have been very have kind of told me up front because they feel it's important for me to know and um my thing is always that i ask people okay what is it that you need me to know about this because of course not all autistic people or not all neurodivergent people are the same uh, shouldn't be treated as the same um so my question is always what do i need to know about your understanding and how we can work together and that usually is a really much better foundation for the therapeutic relationship great thank thank you um okay question from igor some people are very insistent that other people eat badly and always trying to police how other people eat. Do you have a quick way to shut them the fuck up? (laughs) Um, Oh, you have a couple of options, I think. Um, A nice solid, what business is it of yours uh, is a good one. Or if you want to, if you want to kind of be a polite and set a polite boundary, um, a a good one is a, uh, please stop commenting on my food Let's just mutually agree not to comment on each other's food. I feel like that's the best thing for our relationship. Um, a good fuck off is always uh, nice. Uh, but I do I do love a, what business is it of yours? Why do you care so much? 
Yeah, I, I um, mean, I, I can I can certainly say, um, you know, as a parent, I've had to have words with older generation about commenting on 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 my children, you know, and what they are or aren't eating and how they look, etc. and stuff. So, again, the the you know, it's a generalization, but maybe there's a generational thing to get to get through there. But yeah, so so be blunt then, right? <laughs> If, if, if you feel you can yeah but yeah it's interesting what you say about the generational thing because often um I, I work with a lot of people who just aren't very good at setting boundaries for example obviously boundaries becoming a much bigger conversation now um but the way that we actually approach that and start the conversations and the way that they feel more able to stand up for themselves and to be assertive set boundaries things like that is around their own children is around I don't want relatives commenting on my children's bodies and it's usually because they've come to me because they have their own food issues that they are really paranoid about passing on to their children and they really don't want to which is always wonderful I think because I'm like that already your good intentions are doing so much already but because they sometimes obviously connect these things to their own parents sometimes um they, they then becomes a very important boundaries around because they don't feel yet able to say, don't comment on my body, but they do feel able to start by saying, don't comment on my children's bodies, which is a, just a beautiful way into that whole conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I know the book, you know, there's a chapter in the book that does cover boundaries in, in good detail and, and some, again, fascinating stories about that. Um, let, let's go to the very last question, uh, Pixie. <laughs> because we've used a lot of your time already, for which we're very thankful. This one's from Anonymous. The last question is, what was the celery juice thing? Please tell us more. Oh, with pleasure. Um, okay. So as I said, there is this guy, Anthony William, I think, the medical medium, a man who uh, talks to ghosts and spirits, and they give him medical advice that he so generously passes on to the whole world. Oh, aren't we privileged to have this man in existence? Um so apparently the spirits, the ghosts, told him, celery juice, it's the next big thing. It cures basically everything. And it has to be celery juice because something about sodium crystals and something, something, no fiber, something, something, buy my juicer, uh, something, something, spend a lot of money on this. Uh, and celery juice cures everything. It cures your autoimmune conditions, your skin conditions, your cancer, your diabetes. It basically does everything. And so there was genuinely a period of time, especially in places like LA and parts of London, where you couldn't find celery in supermarkets anymore because everyone was fucking juicing the stuff, which, by the way, is disgusting. It is not tasty. And it's basically just flavored water. It does absolutely nothing. But if you say this on the internet, lot of people get very upset about it what a surprise um okay i'm actually i've actually been blocked by this guy he blocked me on instagram and truly it was one of the greatest days of my life when i discovered this it's kind of a badge of honor if you get blocked by awful people online then you know it's kind of a sign you're doing something right i guess yeah exactly Okay, well, on, on that note, um, I want to say thank you so much, Pixie. Folks, please, in the text chat, show some love, okay? Uh, I think it's been a great talk and, and a very, very frank and open Q&A as well. Pixie, if people want to hear or see more of you, um, how do they go about it? So I'm, I'm not very good on social media at the moment, but my social media across all the things is at Pixie Nutrition. If you want to get in contact, you can email me, uh, 
hello at pixietononutrition.com or through the website. Uh, unfortunately, uh, our clinical practice, so um, my team and I, we are completely booked up at the moment. Um, we do have a wait list, um, but we are, yeah, we are sadly completely full. Uh, but if you want to make an inquiry, you are very welcome to. And uh, buy the book, please. It's definitely, the book is a slightly different vibe to what I've been talking about in the sense that it has definitely got that self-help angle. Um, but I still think it's good. Uh, I concur. Thank you so much, Pixie. Um, thank you for joining us. All the best. See you next time. Ego out. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>